0: The world cannot be made.
1: Another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, July 2021, is all about behavior on the Pause platform. Today, I'm delighted to welcome behavioral scientist and psychology professor Clive Wynn, who directs the Canine Science Collaboratory at the Arizona State University. Clive is director of the research of Wolf Park at Battleground in Indiana in the USA and is also the author of multiple books, including his latest Dog is Love. Welcome, Clive.
0: Sabrina, thank you for inviting me on. It's great to be with you all.
1: Yes, absolutely. Very much looking forward. I already introduced you briefly, lots of wonderful work you're doing, but perhaps you could do a short introduction to yourself and uh, perhaps how you... You know, became a student at the universities in London
0: and also in Edinburgh. Yeah, sure. Absolutely, Sabrina. So, I am originally from Britain. I was born on the Isle of Wight off the South Coast there. And um, I went to university in London. And it was while I was there that I realized that there could be such a thing as a scientific study of animal minds. And that excited me tremendously. And so I followed that into my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And then I had, I don't know, quite some time, 10, 15 or more years where I was just studying the behavior and minds and psychology and cognition of species other than our own human species. I spent a lot of time working with pigeons just because there's a rich tradition of studying the behavior of pigeons. And then I had a decade of my life where I lived and worked in Australia where I did some studies which, I, which I'm fascinated by on the behavior of Australian marsupials, which have been very, very little studied. So that was, that was all good, clean fun. And then 20 years ago now, I got a position at the University of Florida. And so I had to give up studying the marsupials that I'd come to know and love. And I found myself looking around for something new to study. And I learned about myself that I wasn't just interested in the behavior and the psychology of animals. I was also interested in the behavior of animals in relationship to human beings, the human-animal relationship. And once I recognized that about myself, I realized I had to be studying dogs because there is no animal with which we human beings have had a longer relationship than the dog. There's no animal... That more of us have a more intimate relationship with than the dog and so this is now like 15 years ago roughly speaking i started studying the behavior of dogs in human society and also putting the behavior of dogs into the context of the behavior of their wild relatives of which the wolf is the most important because all of our dogs are descended from wolves and so that's sort of the story, Sabrina, of how I got to be who I now am. And when I, when I tell people the story of my whole kind of professional um, journey, what strikes me about it now is that I'm in the right place now. It's just a bit of a shame that it took me such a long time to figure out what would be the ideal thing for me to be studying. And I think, I hope, that we that we can do some good uh the bringing the tools i developed before i ever got to dogs as a as a experimental psychologist studying the behavior of animal species i th- i think i believe that those tools are are useful in understanding our our canine best friends and helping i mean this is the crucial thing right to help people and their dogs live better lives together because I mean, I'm, I love my dog, and everybody I talk to loves their dog, and we have these amazingly rich experiences. But I was just reading the other day a, a report in the news over here about um, people being attacked by police dogs. And, you know, there are there are difficulties. Difficulties do arise. Uh, it's not all. It's not all wonderful. And I hope that by bringing science to to the human dog relationship we can help people and dogs leave lead better lives together
1: that sounds wonderful and i was also wondering whether you could elaborate a little bit about when we say animal minds what do you mean by animal minds
0: wow sabrina i'm i'm an agnostic right so so when i'm using my scientific terminology if you're going to talk to me about reinforcement I'm going to be I'm going to be really precise because that's my scientific terminology scientific terminology has to be precise but some of the time I'm using everyday language and so when I talk about love I mean we can certainly talk about I do mean something when I say love and I do mean something when I say minds but I don't mind that these terms are vague terms and have a considerable range of applicability to me The mind of an animal, the mind of a human being, is a shorthand way of saying everything this being does, every way that their brain processes, that they perceive, that they reason, that they remember, you put all of that together and I'll call that the animal mind.
1: Great. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And so, of course, we have a lot of different people listening to the podcast and it's always really good to, you know, talk about what is also daily language or what is shorthand or, you know, like you also mentioned how important it is that we are precise in our language and One of the other things that would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about before we dive into all your research and so on, which I'm sure will include this, but when you say the human-animal relationship, can you talk a little bit about what that means and what people could envision that to include?
0: Well, the the human-animal relationship is anytime. I mean, humans are animals. I'm, again, using everyday terminology when I'm drawing a distinction between human animals and all the other animals but anytime that a person interacts with a member of another species we can say that there's some kind of a relationship at the at the one extreme we have the um, the beautiful loving relationship that so many of us enjoy with our dogs i mean my dog sleeps on the foot of my bed and and um, greets me every time I come home. And that's you know among the most intimate relationships that people ever have with any other species. And there are not many species that you can have that level of intimacy with, through to, I suppose, you could say at some extreme, somebody who gets eaten by a bear has had some kind of brief <laughs> relationship with that bear. Um, but we probably would hardly uh, count that extreme. Um, but I mean, all through human history, I mean, our modern lives, right? The modern life that we have where we allow one or two creatures into our homes with us. And the rest of the time we move through cities and towns and even goodness knows landscapes where there are precious few other living animals. That's a very new phenomenon. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would be interested, Sabrina, you're in Spain. Would you ever see dogs on the streets in Spain where you live?
1: Where I live, we hardly ever see dogs on the street. But when you go a little bit more south, uh, I have seen dogs on the street. It's not very, it very depends in what area it is in Spain.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in in Europe, in general, if you go right down to the very south of Europe, you still see dogs on the streets, but you do not see them even in the north of Spain, you might see them maybe in Italy, maybe in Greece, but uh, uh, over here in the United States, you know, I'm only three hours drive away from the Mexico border. If I were to drive across into Mexico, there would be street dogs everywhere, but there are no street dogs in the United States to speak of, I mean, there there might be pockets. Uh, You go back 20 years, you go back 40 years, you go back 50 years, there were street dogs all throughout uh, North America and Europe. It's very recent that we pushed them out of our lives so, um, so our ancestors, which is to say, just our parents and our grandparents, never mind our ancestors—you know, the Romans and the Greeks, thousands of years ago—our ancestors lived surrounded by animals. Our ancestors lived in small villages. There were farm animals. They had some kind of a relationship with many more animals than we do. We have changed the structure of our lives so that animals are, are largely expelled, except for a tiny number who we give a special privileged space to.
1: Yeah, actually in this area where I live, we have cats and we also have uh, organized, you know, obviously there's some people that feed the cats in certain places, but then there's also organized stations where they talk about how to feed the cats and what not to feed them and, you know, and where to feed them. So they have really nice signage to actually deal with and uh, they have, of course, uh, all kinds of programs around it, but yeah, no dogs here in this area. But Well, it's similar
0: dogs, Similar in many parts of the United States, certainly in Florida, there was extensive feral cat feeding, um, but dogs are not tolerated. Here in Arizona, we have um, coyotes uh, in, in, I mean, they hide during the daytime, but they come out, uh, which is partially why we don't have cats, because the coyotes eat the cats um, and frighten the dogs. So, you know, we do have small amounts of feral animals um, in, in warmer parts of the world. I think as you go north into colder climates, these smaller feral animals are less likely to survive
1: yes so for anybody interested in human animal relationships there's a huge body of literature out there you can find it under HAR human animal relationships or interactions and bonds and you know the differences or when does something become a bond and so on and we might hear more about that but if you're interested we'll put some links with this uh, podcast so that you can explore that topic a lot more great so you have a lot of different research you have of course you know if you look. Um, Clive up on uh, ResearchGate, you'll find a lot and on your website and lots of books. So perhaps you could talk a little bit to us about your past and current research, perhaps uh, the ability of pet dogs uh, to react adaptively to the behavior of the people they live with or some of the other work that you might want to highlight.
0: Sure, absolutely, Sabrina. So over this now 15 years, we've done a lot of different kinds of research projects I realized early on that there were just so many fascinating questions we could address that we've actually tried to focus our work where we can be the most help to people and their dogs. And one area where certainly in the United States where dogs suffer greatly is in the animal shelter or animal rescue. Uh, uh, This varies greatly from nation to nation. And within the United States, it varies a lot in different parts of the United States. But over here, we still have over 4 million dogs every year entering animal shelters. And originally animal shelters, humane societies, these were just places where an animal was held for just a couple of days. And if nobody picked it up, then it was euthanized. And so for a long time, Most dogs that entered animal shelters would be euthanized. About 20 years ago, there was a movement to reduce the amount of euthanasia in shelters. It used to be, as I say, even 20 years ago, more than half of all the dogs coming in would be put to sleep. Now it's far fewer. The numbers are not very reliable, but it might be as few as 10% of dogs coming into shelters are being put to sleep. And that's a wonderful thing. Of course, it's a wonderful thing. But what it then means is that dogs are coming into shelters. These are very basic facilities, generally speaking. They were designed 20, 30, 40 years ago where it was not expected that a dog would spend more than say two weeks in these kennels. And now many dogs are spending months in these very impoverished facilities. And I know in Europe, some European nations have made it completely illegal to euthanize a healthy animal in the shelter. And so that means that you have vast numbers of dogs living in what are obviously not ideal conditions. And so if I was to try and guess over the last decade, how much of our energy has gone into what kind of research projects, the number one area where we have put most energy has been helping dogs in animal shelters. And one whole series of studies that I'm very proud of that were particularly led by Sasha Protopopova, who's now a professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada, were projects looking at how to help dogs find new homes. And people in the past had done studies where they would ask people, what kind of dog are you looking for? What do you want this dog to be able to do? I and Sasha, we had a suspicion that people didn't always necessarily know what they wanted, that you could ask them and they would give you an answer, but that that wouldn't necessarily actually predict their behavior. And so instead of asking people questions, Sasha and the people who worked with her followed people around as they went through the shelter and looked at what the dogs did and then how the humans responded. That is to say, did the humans adopt this dog or did they ignore this dog? And so from that, we were able to ascertain, for example, just one study quickly, people at the shelter we're working with allowed to take the dog out of the kennel and play with the dog in a grassy area where they could do all sorts of things with the dog. Sasha and the students who worked with her made hundreds of videos of what the people and the dogs did together. And then she observed, did that person adopt that dog? Or did that person say, no, thank you and go home without the dog. And so now we go through those videos minute by minute by minute, making a note of every single thing that the dog does. Does the dog poop? Does the dog bark? Does the dog run? Does the dog wag his tail? All the many, many different things that a dog might do. And we can look at, of all these many things the dog can do, which of them have any impact on the adopter's decision, the potential adopter's decision to adopt or go home without the dog? The list of things the dog could do, I forget exactly how long it was, but it was at least 50 different things that a dog might do because the dog's free. You know, the dog's not on a leash. The dog's outside. The dog could do anything. But it turned out that of all the many things the dog might do, only two of them had any appreciable impact on this potential adopter's decision to adopt or not. And those two things were simply when the human says, play with me, doggy. If you're the dog and you want to be adopted, you better play. You have to respond positively to the play invitation. And that's kind of a little bit demanding because the play invitation can take many different forms. Some people throw a tennis ball and expect the dog to bring it back. Some people pick up a piece of rope or something and expect the dog to tug on the other end of it. There are a few different things a human might do. But that decision to play or not to play had a massive impact. And then the only other thing that mattered, when the human grows weary of playing and the human stands still or sits down, the dog needs to come up and put him or herself within one meter of the stationary human being those are the only two things that count. Respond positively to play invitations and stay close to the human when the human stops playing. And those two things made over a hundredfold difference in a dog's chance of being adopted. And so conceptually very, very simple. Heck of a lot of work, but conceptually very simple and with a really important outcome because now we know Whatever people might say about what they think they're looking for, those two things are the things that really make the difference. So that's just one little example from a lot of different studies that we've done, which I'm, I'm very proud of. And I, I'm especially proud of pointing out that this is basic science, right? Because we're just observing, but it shows you how basic knowledge is enormously powerful because from that you can then develop interventions to help a dog say yes to a play invitation and to help a dog rest in the vicinity of the human being when the play is over. But to a lot of researchers, a lot of people in the field, they wanna jump in with interventions, having not done the basic research to figure out what would really make a difference. And Sasha did go on and has developed interventions and can show that those really do make a difference.
1: That is super cool. Yeah. As you're telling the story and the outcomes, I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. These are some interventions you can actually do with the dogs. Like, what are, because often, especially, you know, as you say, what can we do to actually help these animals that often have to stay for so long? Uh, And uh, where are you going to then put the valuable time and money and, you know, the limited resources? So, yeah, such a great example of how basic research. Which really, you know, it's it almost makes it sound not important, right? Basic research, but it's super important. You showed. Yeah. Well. We, yeah.
0: We're we're always finding that when we're looking to get financial support for our work, people are forever wanting. I mean, over here in the United States, there are plenty of charities that support interventions, and I'm always saying to them. Why do you give millions to interventions when you don't know whether these interventions right. work? And uh, it's much more difficult to get people to support the basic science without which interventions are really just, you know, jabbing in the dark.
1: Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's like um, some of the funding for perhaps uh, support, like buying a car or something else for an NGO or so. People don't think that's really quite, you know, or the overheads or something, people don't think that's quite sexy or cool. So it has to contribute to something else, right? And so, yeah, I guess there's yeah. so many examples of where we, we have to kind of look at the system. How do we make basic research interesting to people that they go, oh, yeah, we definitely need to do that or get them to understand. "Yeah, well, This is so important because then the money really goes to the things that are going to be meaningful. Um, especially, you know, in these cases, right. yeah, that's wonderful. And um, I was also—it made me think of this these studies that I've heard about, but I haven't uh, been able to track them down yet, just because I haven't spent the time for it. But where people were looking at um, the personality of animals and uh, the things they like doing, and then the personality and the things that people like doing, and then they would, you know assign a certain color or a certain code and when people would go into the shelter they could only adopt uh, the the animals that were in those code um, groups or in that color groups and that was really to decrease also the um, amount of animals often coming back to the shelter so that's just another example but I think it's really it's really important to really look at okay so how what can we do intervention-wise to help animals either be adopted and also stay adopted. And yeah, that's just wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. Perha- yeah. Perhaps you, you know, and I think your approach with regards to, so where can we make a real difference? You know, where can we really help and how can we do that? That is such an important a really important message that I hope will just is echoing through this podcast, and for and for sure for me, because I do find that um, sometimes in in science or in wanting to know things, it's for some people or some organization, it's only about. Just wanting to know it rather than necessarily doing anything with that information, or why do we want to know that and how can we make a difference? So, that is something that really resonates uh, with me. So, I'm really glad that you are sharing this and that you are, um, you know, doing all this work together with all your collaborators.
0: And yeah, uh, well, I wouldn't, I would, yeah,
1: go ahead, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, understand. I mean, there is a value in just trying to understand. I still feel, Absolutely. I've been yes. writing about this recently, yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds maybe like a strange thing to say. People have been living with dogs for over 10,000 years, 15,000 years, and we feel we know our dogs. And of course, scientists have been studying dogs. There's this new phase of studying dogs that's been going on for 20 years. But you know, I mean, dogs were there at the very beginning of modern experimental psychology. I mean, Pavlov was studying dogs. So we've been studying dogs. And yet, when I think about dogs, I feel that there are lots of basic questions about their psychology, which we have not answered. And these are basic questions. But if we understood them, they would have implications for how we live with dogs. So can I can I give you an example. So We say that dogs are loyal. That's something everybody says about their dog. Their dog is loyal. And yet we know, at some level, we know that our dog can be rehomed. And my dog was already one year old. She was not, you know, she was not a puppy when I got her. And I wish I had paid closer attention when she came into our lives, because it's clear that when when she first arrived in our household, she was uncomfortable. I'm sure she was. But I would say that was all gone within a few weeks, maybe three weeks. And yet if we had adopted a human child, we had we have we had and we have a human child who must have been about 11 or 12 years old when we adopted the dog. If we had adopted a new 12-year-old human child, the adjustment would have been far more difficult, far more difficult. I mean, the trauma to a child of being rehomed, of being orphaned and rehomed, which is effectively what happened to our dog, is far, far greater. So all I'm getting at is that there are elements of how dogs form bonds with people that we don't properly understand. And um, I write about some of this in my book, Dog is Love, about how dogs do form strong loving bonds with people, but they seem to be able to do this far more quickly and easily than we would expect other human beings to do it. And we also know rather little about how dogs live who are not pets. I mean, there are dogs, we were just talking about this before we started. There are dogs living free in the South of Europe, in the East of Europe. There are dogs living free in Mexico and all of the parts of North and South America that are Mexico and anywhere further South. The majority of dogs on the world's surface are not pets, right? There could be something like 1 billion dogs on the surface of this planet. And of that 1 billion, What, two or three hundred million might be pets. And that leaves 700 million dogs who are not pets, who live in some kind of some kind of an existence somewhere near people, possibly with some sort of a relationship to certain people who they see every day. But primarily they're living among their own kind. And we know so little about the social relationships of dogs living with other dogs, not living with people as pets, but living with other dogs in streets, in towns, in forests, in whatever. And if we want to deeply understand dogs, and I think that a deeper understanding would help us help them in the long run. We really need to understand these dog-dog social relationships. And what little we have, this is really paradoxical, because what little we know is that dog-dog social relationships are very fluid. That dogs don't have the kind of strong bonds with other dogs that they form with people, which is all quite puzzling. And I'd love to know more about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. I also think it's very important that we know. Sometimes also we want to know stuff and we don't necessarily know how it connects, right? Or how it might be useful. Uh, So that is absolutely important. And, uh, And at the same time, also, I think it's very important that we find ways to use, you know, scientific knowledge or practical knowledge to help other animals or people or the planet. Yeah, and I think it is interesting to, um, to see, you know, I'm not a dog person. So every time people go, even though I've trained animals all my life, and then people go, Oh, can you train my dog? And I'm like, well, I could to a certain extent, but I, it's probably better for you to connect with a dog trainer who knows a lot more about dog behavior, because of course, when we say dog, it's pretty much like saying primates, you know, there's so many (laughs) different Um, and I'm sure not all dogs are all the same and um, in the way that they react or communicate in their body language and so on. Right. And um, yeah, so I think it's, it's really interesting to, learn a little bit more you talked about human-animal relationships and it seems that dogs having more fluid bonds and then there's of course these very famous stories of dogs with very strong bonds to their to their people i guess we say uh, that either you know travel for a long time to get back home uh, or stay in a place where they last saw that they're human and um, yeah, I don't know whether you could elaborate
0: a little bit on that or sure. Yeah. Well, so I've I've been I've been doing a lot of reading recently, Sabrina, trying to trying to disentangle the myths from the reliable histories. And it's terribly, terribly difficult. It's very clear that people going back a very long time have felt a strong connection to dogs and have felt that the dogs reciprocate that connection. And I, I, I believe that's a real thing. And that goes back to the ancient Greeks, 200 BC. There's writings about the strength of the bond. But then you also get these stories, for example, that dogs grieve their deceased person and that that can continue for years after the death of the human. And those, so far as I can tell, are myths. They are not true. Now, clearly, a dog, you know, if I disappeared from my dog's life, she would be unhappy, uncomfortable for some period of time. Now, from her perspective, it makes no difference whether I have died Or whether I have just moved to another city and left her behind, she doesn't have any way of knowing whether I'm alive or dead. Um, All that all that occurs is that she has a strong connection and then the person she's connected to disappears and that clearly distresses dogs, just like it distresses us. The stories, the famous stories of dogs who kept going back to the grave or that one in Japan where the dog kept going back to the railway station. Uh, I have dug as deep as I can into those stories and they're not true in the manner they are presented. So both the, the two best known ones that I know of is the the dog in Japan Whose master died in the 1930s, and Greyfriars Bobby, whose master died in the 19th century in Scotland. Both of those date back to epochs when streets in Scotland and in Japan were full of street dogs. And what seems to have happened is street dogs would tend to be attracted towards railway stations. Why? Because people go to railway stations, people often pick up food at railway stations. I've seen this myself in Moscow, where the dogs hang around the subway stations. Why do they hang around the subway stations? They have no interest in traveling on the trains. That's not why they're there. subway stations in central moscow like railway stations all around cities all around the world they have places around them where you can get food right you get a sausage you get a kebab you get food at an urban subway station and because people are picking up food and in many situations you're not allowed to take the food on the train or you just don't want to eat on the train so you're eating a hot dog and there's a bit left and you throw that to the dogs that hang around the Moscow subway station or back in the 1930s, the the railway station in, in Tokyo in Japan. And that attracts a lot of animals. And that then leads to a situation where yes, the same dogs keep coming back. And yes, it's possible that one of these dogs, there seems to be some reporting from the time, this dog in Tokyo, After the master disappeared, the family more or less just kicked the dog out. In those days, people were more fluid about whether a dog was a member of the household or was part of the street dogs. And this dog ended up hanging around the railway station. And there were a whole bunch of political reasons in Japan in the 1930s why it was felt important to build a story for children about the loyalty of this dog and and, uh, all this kind of stuff. And in the case of Greyfire's Bobby in Edinburgh, in Scotland, and other stories from around the world of dogs going to graveyards, the life of a street dog in a city is a very stressful, busy, noisy life. And the dogs sometimes want some peace and quiet. And so they would move towards spending time in graveyards because a graveyard is one of the quieter places in a busy city. And in the case of Greyfriars Bobby, there was actually a pub near the graveyard. And the owner of the pub started giving food to this particular dog because it was an attractive dog. And he started, he, the owner of the pub, started this story to try and encourage people to come to his pub and see this dog. And so, so you know, there are all sorts of I mean, this in itself absolutely fascinates me how we human beings weave dogs into stories that are important to us. And the story of loyalty is a story that's important to us. And dogs do have, do show certain forms of loyalty. I think that's true. And they do certainly show affection and love but their loyalty is, is, it's not quite the same. It doesn't take quite the same form as human loyalty. And so sometimes we project human qualities onto dogs because we, because we want that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And even if you ask between different peoples, you would have different answers what loyalty means to them and what it is. And yeah, and uh, so we'll have to put up a spoiler alert uh, for this section. <laughs> people might be like, what? But uh, no, but of course, um, yeah, There and and I think it also goes back to our, you know, when we care for animals or we want the best for animals, we want to consider that part, right? You talked about the minds of animals and the emotional uh, lives of animals uh, also um, is important. We want to kind of put consideration also towards that, like what does that mean for them if you know, this happens or that happens or, and, and of course we know the stories of people coming back after be, having been gone and dogs you know getting very excited but also I know from the zoo community you know people have cared for an animal for a long time and that animal maybe for a breeding program or something else moved somewhere and they sometimes go visit right the animals they loved and uh, love still love and they um, and there's you know recognition and there's excitement about hey you know um, so and that's really yeah so obviously, like you say, the weaving of stories, but also our attachment and our wanting to understand. Um, and what does that mean for animals? So yeah, that's, that must be fascinating. Yeah.
0: Well, let, let me, let me just say that I do believe that our dogs do love us. I mean, that is the theme of my yes. book, Dog is yeah, Love, absolutely. Why and how yeah. Your Dog Loves You. Yes, they do love us. And it, and it does, our, our presence does mean a lot to them. And we've shown that in our own studies of many people in different forms of different ways have shown that there is a real emotional bond and our dogs do suffer when they are parted from us. If, if that has to happen, but I think that it's, it's worth being aware that dogs can and do move on. And so if a dog has to be rehomed, that, that is a thing that if it has to happen is not a total tragedy, as I said already with a child, this is an amazingly, grievously difficult thing for a child, for a dog, it's, it's sad, but it's something a dog can move on from. And if a dog you know, loses their human for whatever reason, death or, or whatever, and you have some responsibility to help that dog, then get on with the, with the work of rehoming that dog and giving that dog an opportunity to enjoy the next phase of life. And yeah, if that person came back, Charles Darwin, right? Charles Darwin went round the world uh, and it took, what did it take? Three or four years, uh, five years. Okay, it took five years. I mean, it was a slow business. It was the only period of Darwin's life where he did not have a dog with him, but he was on a boat called the Beagle, strangely enough. Um, And he came back home and he described how his dog recognized him after five years uh, which is a, a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing, and yet, a dog can move on, can get on with life with with new humans if if treated well and so on.
1: Yes, absolutely. And we're going to hear a lot more about you know your book, uh, "Dog Is Love," and uh, and I think you know that's another important part also to kind of look at. In what ways do we speak about? You talked already about precision and about language and in what ways can it help us, you know, talk about what might dogs experience. And also you mentioned a lot of the things that we don't necessarily know. So that kind of erring on the side of caution, right? That you say like, okay, so how can we help dogs get another um, home or enjoy the next phase of the life, and at the same time, you know, continuing, of course, to study and uh, and maybe that's the the beauty, or sometimes the difficult part also of scientific inquiry is also that we you know have to go oh wait a second now we know something else and we ha- may have to change the way that we do things or have our interventions and and who knows what else we'll discover about dog and their minds and everything else. So uh, perhaps we could go um, talk a little bit about the differences and similarities in learning and interactions and behaviors uh, that you did for your research on dogs and wolves.
0: Sure, absolutely. So, so when, uh, when we started studying dogs and how they respond to people, There had been a recent revival of interest in studying dogs, and this was particularly driven by Brian Hare, who's now a professor at Duke University in North Carolina, and Adam Miklosi, who's a professor in Budapest, Hungary. And those two had been working independently and had come to the same conclusion. And that conclusion was that dogs have exceptional forms of cognition, exceptional ways of learning about people the dogs are so successful living with people because they have special ways of understanding people and they they and a whole bunch of other people did a series of studies looking at how dogs understand what people are doing and there are a lot of different ways that this was tested but there's one very simple way which has been used most commonly so let's just talk about that and that is the ability of a dog to follow a human gesture. If you point at something, in all likelihood, your, go- your dog, not your God, but your dog will go <laughs> and investigate the thing that you are pointing at. And this uh, was known before, but it was especially revived as a point of interest in the late 1990s. And it seemed to be so interesting because it did not appear that any other animals could do this. Brian Hare had access to chimpanzees and other great apes. Those are our humans' closest surviving relatives on the planet. They're relatively closely related to humans. Dogs, of course, are not particularly closely related to, to humans. Dogs are carnivores, right? Humans are primates. They're not especially closely related. And so it was kind of surprising that dogs appeared to be able to do something that chimpanzees could not do. And then both Brian Hare and Adam McClosey tested hand reared wolves for their ability to follow human pointing gestures. And they both reported independently of each other that the wolves they tested would not, could not go where a human pointed Now, when I first heard about this, I thought this was absolutely fascinating, wonderful discoveries, and I thought it seemed plausible. I was not, people don't believe me now because of how this played out, but I was not at the time particularly skeptical about this finding. And then I got an email out of the blue from Wolf Park in Indiana. Now, Wolf Park have been hand-rearing wolves since 1974, so they're really very, very good at it. And they were contacting me because they'd also heard about these findings from Budapest and from Brian Heron, North Carolina, and they didn't believe them. And the staff out at Wolf Park, I mean, they spend their days interacting with these wolves that they have known since the wolves were tiny little pups. They hand rear them and they interact with them every day. And then almost all of them have dogs that they go home to in the evening. So you will hardly ever meet anybody who has a more nuanced understanding of what wolves are like or can be like if they're hand reared and what dogs are like than these staff out at Wolf Park in Indiana. And they didn't believe what they were hearing was in the scientific literature, but they're not scientists themselves. And so they reached out to me and asked me, was I interested in coming up to Wolf Park and putting their wolves through these tests? And So I went out there with Monique Udell, who's now a professor at Oregon State University, and I have to say the weekend, the long weekend we spent out there was one of the most exciting moments in my whole scientific life. Because as I say, I didn't go with the skepticism which people now assume I must have had. I went out there with an open mind and we started pointing and sure enough, These wolves were every bit as good at following human pointing gestures as were any of the dogs that we or anybody else had tested. Since then, Adam McClosey in Budapest, his people have tested some more wolves and they've come over to our site. They say that actually wolves can follow human pointing gestures. And other people have tested a variety of other species and it turns out, we tested bats, for example, and it turns out that members of many, many species of animal can and will follow human pointing gestures, but only if they were raised by human beings from a tiny, tiny age, from when they were very young, because it's crucial that the animal learns to accept human beings as companions. Because most animals don't, right? I mean, most animals out there in the in the wild, the coyotes that roam my city after dark, these animals don't have social relationships with human beings. Of course they don't. That's in many senses not a natural thing. But if the individual you're gonna test has been raised by human beings so that it's comfortable around people and it accepts people as social companions, and throughout its life, It has been dependent on people for the things that it wants and needs in life. So that if a human moves their arm towards something, the animal has some reason to be interested in this movement. There has to be a reason why an animal would attend to it. If those conditions are fulfilled, then really, I doubt that there's any species that would be incapable of following a human pointing gesture. The problem was, that the earlier tests done on wolves, those were not animals that have been particularly successfully hand reared. And, and I understand why, a lot of the testing was done with the wolf on one side of a fence and the human making the gestures on the other side of the fence. Well, the problem is wolves, dogs, they don't have the kind of vision that humans have. They probably couldn't fully make out what the human was doing so um, so that, that's, that has been the biggest uh, sort of contribution that I feel I've made and the people who work with me have made to understanding how dogs and wolves learn about their cognition. And our contribution is to say that the fundamental processes of learning and cognition that go on in dogs and wolves and other animals are basically the same You get different outcomes just because different individuals have different experiences of life. If you were to find a dog that had never been near human beings, and although most dogs are not pets, most dogs do grow up near human beings. But if you found one, and I believe there are some on the outskirts of Moscow, in the forests, in Italy, in other parts of the world, if you found one of those dogs and tried to see if it would follow your pointing gesture, it wouldn't know what you were doing. It would run away from you, it wouldn't be interested. And meanwhile, you can have the wildest of animals, but if it was captured when it was young and it was raised by human beings and it depends on what people are doing for the things that matter to it, well, then it will follow what people are doing. So, so yeah, so, so my big take home on the learning side is that the processes of learning are amazingly similar across many different animals you get different outcomes cuz different individuals have different experiences of life
1: yes and it reminds me of you know as you're talking about gestures you know some of the studies indeed like with primates or with other animals but also gestures just between the peoples of the earth, right? If you are not growing <laughs> up in, say, my mother is from Italy, my dad is from the Netherlands. So, you know, Dutch people not being accustomed to, you know, the, the Italian gesturing is also, you know, the, some, some, point, uh, some gestures, I guess, maybe as facial expressions are perhaps universal that everybody kind of understands. But some of them, of course, you also have to learn. So I guess, I don't know about uh, actually, now that I'm saying it, I'm not sure, are there, are the gestures uh, universal to a certain extent as some of the facial expressions or most of the facial expressions are, or?
0: um, So I believe all I know about, all I know about hand gestures I think that a big hand gesture is pretty, and these are, we are talking about whole arm plus hand gestures. I believe those are universal. What differs is uh, whether it's is finger gesturing. And in some cultures, finger gesturing is rude. It's impolite. Yes. Yes. And I, I only know this because if you go to Disney World, the staff are careful to make full hand gestures because that does not offend anybody, whereas Growing up in England, a simple pointing gesture would seem more natural, but I understand now that that is considered rude in, in some cultures. Dogs will follow whole arm hand gestures. They also follow foot gestures, which surprises some people because people are not, they don't think of themselves as using their foot to point very much. But I believe that dogs pick up these gestures because the movement leads to a consequence that the animal is interested in. And so if you kick a ball for your dog, that kicking movement indicates to the dog where the ball you're kicking will go to. And so the dog attends to that movement of your leg without you necessarily being aware that that's what's gonna happen.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, even if you're like coming in the house with two shopping bags right you you might still kind of play bit your dog uh, kicking a ball or something else Yes, absolutely um one of the other things that I just wanted to backtrack before we go into your books about the human animal relationship you talked already about play and how play seems to be so important to people and can you talk a little bit to humans as social enrichment uh, for captive canines
0: Oh, well, so so it's clear that our dogs and potentially other canine species like wolves, um, well, can and do form social relationships with us. And so our interactions with them naturally form social enrichment for them. I mean, that's very obviously true with dogs who so easily form social relationships with people Uh, It's also true of wild canine species like wolves, potentially coyotes, uh, jackals, whatever you care to name. It's more difficult to get them to socially bond with people. But if they meet people early enough in life, they will form those social bonds. And Once you have a social bond, my guess and it is just a guess because I don't really know how we would study this. But my guess would be that an animal like a dog or potentially a wolf just sees you as a social companion doesn't actually have a way of categorizing your species identity doesn't say oh this is Sabrina she's my human friend and this is Fido he's my dog friend I think to an animal these are all just friends and it's true that Sabrina can do things that Fido can't and vice versa. But I don't think, as I say, you can't really know, but I don't think that animals actually categorize their friends as belonging to different species. We don't know for sure, but I don't think so. I think they just categorize their friends as this is Sabrina. She knows where the food is kept. And this is Fido. I can sniff his butt and he can sniff mine, right? I mean, that, that sort of that sort of thing. I think that's probably how it works. And the implication of that is that human beings can form, can offer social enrichment to animals. I mean, certainly we see with our dogs that dogs are lonely and unhappy if they are left completely alone for extended periods of time, but they are happy and not lonely if they have human beings to keep them company. So, So I think that's pretty clear that humans can be social enrichment. There can be, in other words, cross species social enrichment. And um, I I know of at least one zoo, the San Diego Zoo in San Diego, California, where they have put dogs in with other, with zoo animals in order to provide social enrichment. I don't, I think a big cat, I forget.
1: Yeah. With
0: cheetahs. The cheetah. Yeah. With at least with the cheetahs, maybe with others. And my main concern there would be the safety of the dog um, because a cheetah could do a dog a great deal of harm. Um, uh, But if there is acceptance, then I think it's a, it's a great thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. They're, they're larger, larger dogs. And they also do that from like when the cheetahs are small and they learn, they orient on the dog. And if the dog is calm and, and, you know, radiating safety than the cheetah also and these cheetahs are used in various outreach and interactive programs and so yeah. yeah that's how that that bonding and I think you know you've talked a lot about play and and social enrichment and but of course you also have talked a little bit about you know some of the the suboptimal welfare that dogs might experience and could you talk a little bit about the deployment of uh, applied behavior analysis techniques to like what sorts of problems have you encountered and how have you been able to solve uh, some of these or all of them yeah
0: <laughs> oh absolutely so so when i was um, at the university of florida i had a number of colleagues who were leaders in applied behavior analysis which I actually didn't know very much about before then. And so this is a whole set of techniques that rely entirely on positive reinforcement on rewards to change the behavior, primarily of people who have severe abiding behavioral problems, like say autistic people, for example. And um, these techniques have been developed over the last 50 years and they're tremendously successful. I mean, they're really the number one tool for dealing with a number of, of human behavioral problems, but they'd hardly ever been deployed on animal behavioral problems. And so my, my PhD students at the time had the opportunity to take classes in applied behavior analysis. And they started taking these classes. And from that, they started educating me and starting saying, well, Clive, well, why don't we do this with dogs who have behavioral problems? And, um, so, one example, another example of Sasha Protopopova's research, a major behavioral problem that people have with their dogs, which seems especially difficult to deal with, is dogs who bark when they're left alone. And this is a very difficult problem. Often the first that the person knows about it is they come home from work and 10 minutes later, their neighbor comes around and knocks on the door and says, hey, I need to have a word with you about your dog. While you were out at work today, your dog's been barking all day and I have a baby or I have work I need to do and I cannot get on with my life if you if you cannot make your dog shut up. And how do you you deal with that when the whole definition of the problem is that there's nobody there? And so Sasha got one of these wireless remote controlled feeding devices and she sets up the feeder in the home and she goes and hides in the bathroom of the house (laughs) with the remote control in her hand and the owner leaves and within a few moments, the dog starts barking a yap. Yeah, yeah. And what she does is she first of all ascertains, well, how frequently does this dog bark? And this dog barked very frequently. I forget that the average time between barks now, but it was less than 10 seconds. It was, you know, yap, 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 yap. It was terrible. And so having ascertained what the average interval between barks was, Sasha then set up with a timer to give the dog food, a little piece of food, if it would just keep quiet for 80% of the average interval. So if, if, if the interval had been 10 seconds, if it would just be quiet for eight seconds, she would give it a treat. Quiet for eight seconds, give it a treat. And so she did this and it begins to work. And so then she extends the interval from eight seconds I forget now how she extended it, but she goes up and makes it longer and longer and longer until she has a dog that is willing to remain silent for a whole five minutes at a time, and then a whole 10 minutes at a time. Now, I have to confess as a practical matter, this is far too labor intensive. I mean, Sasha was hiding in that bathroom for hours on end, but you know the technology has evolved. I now have a remote control feeder which can automatically detect when my dog is barking. So we haven't done this yet, but clearly the technology exists. that The machine could be doing all of this on its own, and then it doesn't need to bother us that it takes many hours of time for the dog to be trained because the machine is doing the training. They are now manufacturing machines that can train your dog for you. So that's, that's one little example. That's, that's called differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors where we don't actually care what the alternative is so long as it doesn't involve barking. Um, uh, I don't know, can I think, I'm not sure, I can think of another example off the top of my head right now. Um, That's
1: okay, there's just so many, like, yeah, I'm sure people would be like, Okay, uh what about, you know, my cat scratching, you know, by my furniture or the dog, you know, chewing up the furniture or yeah, there's all these shame photos of course of people with their companion animals on the internet like I ate, you know, the couch yes. or I, yes, I destroyed the plants or yeah. But uh, yeah, that is um, that is really wonderful and like like you said like how can then the technologies help us because yeah most of us cannot sit in the bathroom or anywhere else but uh, yeah those technologies are really great and I saw another one some time ago where the owner and the dog could call each other like it could they could physically see each other on the screen and I was like wow you know like It reminded me of like, what would happen there? Like you get your dog to call you all day long because they're like, (laughs) see by human, right? Uh, But uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot of different, you know, evolutions of of technology use. And so, yeah.
0: No, the technology is is going to help us, particularly this, uh, I'm not sure, I have heard of the technology where the dog can see you and you can see the dog. I don't know. I wonder what proportion of dogs would be able to relate to that. I'm pretty certain my own dog would not. I, do, I doubt it very much. And in any case, I don't I mean, that's amusing and there's nothing wrong with having amusement, but I, I don't view it as having that much practical application. What's wonderful about remote control feeding devices, automatic feeding devices, is that they enable to use positive reinforcement it's, it's easy and natural and understandable that if an animal has an undesirable behavior, people reach for punishment. But if we can, it's far better to find routes to improving behavior that work on positive reinforcement. And these automated feeders, remote control feeders, they can, they can be a great tool for that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. Yes. There's certainly lots of, you know, we just said technology or I said technology and the, um... Of course, there's a lot of technology out there that is not based on positive reinforcement, also for dogs, but also for other animals uh, to make them stop barking or, you know, doing the things that we don't want them to do. And yeah. the other thing, of course, that uh, and, you know, for zoo animals, but also for companion animals, farm animals, for everybody, really, we want to move to positive reinforcement methods um, as much as possible. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the other thing though, that that of course we would be thinking about, at least I'm thinking about, okay, so we can reduce barking uh, animals. uh, The dogs are barking because their human has left. And it seems that through positive reinforcement, we can reduce them to bark, to be quiet. And so it also kind of throws up the question, okay, so they are, what is the origin of the barking? And so if it's a social, um you know we don't see each other but it can be reduced by food uh, i think that's a really interesting you know how does that happen then right it becomes it it transitions from a social into something else it seems
0: yes i i i guess so i guess so i mean i would i would um i would i would say i mean when we have particular behavioral problems to go in with the applied behavior analysis techniques, which I think of as like scalpels, uh, they, they go after a particular problem and they slice the particular problem. It's maybe not the best analogy because I don't want to think of slicing sounds painful. Right? It shouldn't be painful, but you see what I mean. It's a, it's a mechanistic approach. It's a, it's a specific targeted approach, but let's also back up. And yes, let's ask, why is the dog barking? Uh, We could ask that in terms of behavioral systems. What is the behavioral system that's being engaged? And I think clearly there's anxiety. I think barking is, in other species, barking and sounds like barking would be called mobbing calls, which is to say that they are alarm sounds that an animal makes to try and bring the group together to take on a threat. Now, in the case of a dog who's home alone, there isn't really, I mean, we know that there isn't a threat, but the dog's perception of the situation is that it's frightening to be left alone in a situation where you're, you're puny. What could you do if something happened? If there was an attack, you're on your own, you're defenseless, more or less. And I would take another step back and I would ask, well, what is a good life for a dog? And uh, one of the things I feel very strongly is, you know, I love dogs, I love my dog, and, and I relish having her in my life. I mean, I don't feel lonely when she's with me, and I think it's reciprocated that way. But we bring these highly social beings into our lives. I think dogs are exceptionally social. In my scientific writing, I call them hypersocial, because I think they're more social than many other animals, we bring them into our lives precisely because of that. But then too often, too many of us leave our dogs alone for unconscionable periods of time. Now, I understand that in Sweden, there's a, a regulation that says you must not leave your dog home alone for more than four hours at a stretch. Now, I don't know of any research that's looked at whether it should be four hours, not three hours, not five hours, but I think four hours is a good rule of thumb. I think people should think about how you you shouldn't leave this animal, this beautifully social animal, alone in solitary confinement for the whole day. You know, this has been one of the small silver linings of the pandemic that our dogs have had us around them all through the past year and, and a bit. And I hope that as life goes back to normal, that people stop and think about their dogs and think about structuring a life for their dog that does not involve, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours of solitude. I I mean, my dog would go crazy. I think I would probably go crazy if I couldn't watch TV or read a book or something. Um, it, it's, It's not good. It's not good now. I know I'm very privileged. I work from home a great deal. And I know a lot of people are not so lucky and they simply have to go into the office and that that does take many hours. But, um, you know, dogs are highly social beings and we should think about how to provide them with companionship if we have to be away for long periods of time. And that could just be a, a neighbor or friend who enjoys doggy company and wants to come around and have a coffee with the dog. It could be a professional dog walker could be a doggy daycare. I mean, dogs get value from the company of their own species. It could even be a cat who lives in the house. If the dog and the cat are friends, they can keep each other company. But I think of that particular small noisy dog that was the one that Sasha first studied. And that poor little thing, I think it was probably scared. I think it was barking because it was frightened. Uh, It was a small, delicate, vulnerable animal that just shouldn't be left alone for such long periods.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. I see that around here, there's a lot of dog parks where people, also parts of the beaches where people can take their dogs. And, uh, and I see quite a lot of vans like professional dog walkers. And uh, yeah, and I know of people indeed, you know, making sure their friends go and check on their dogs. And and as you mentioned, you know, we are recording this podcast um, in 2021. And, you know, we're still in the pandemic and of course we already hear, you know, people, a lot of people got dogs from the shelter at the beginning of the pandemic. And now here, especially in Spain, a lot of dogs are already being returned as life goes back to normal. And um, yeah, and of course there's lots of questions, you know, what can we do for these dogs? And also, as you mentioned, as life goes back to normal, how? and we now suddenly have been home for so many months and then we go, Back to work now to, you know, do we have a boss or an opportunity to kind of, you know, approximate it or is it going to be from one day to another? And yeah, can we anticipate or prevent some of what those animals yeah. might experience or your cat or anybody else who was used to you yeah. around, right?
0: Right. Well, you raise a very good point, Sabrina. And I think that people who have not yet gone back to old working practices now would be the time to start gentling your dog into an awareness that you may leave, but that you will come back. And that's, I've been going into my office once a week and so that my dog and my cat and my wife and child can learn that I do sometimes, I do sometimes go somewhere else, but hey, it's okay, I will come back. You know, we, we can give ourselves these baby steps and 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 our dogs too.
1: Yes, absolutely. So there, we, you know, came up, of course, with some questions and talking points. And I'm sure, you know, we could do four other podcasts. And uh, <laughs> we have been uh, in this podcast for quite a while. But, of course, we, you know, as we are coming to the end of it, we, of course, want to hear uh, something about your your books. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, Dog is Love and perhaps any other of the other books that you want to share.
0: Sure. So, so um Monique Udell and I just finished, well, I suppose, six months ago, nine months ago, finished the third edition of Animal Cognition, which is, it's a university textbook, uh, but it could be interesting to anyone who's interested in, in animal cognition, in the minds of animals. It's entirely a scientific book. It entirely relies on scientific publications, uh, but, but we, we worked hard to write it in a style that people could understand. And um, I don't get a lot of fan mail for my textbook, but I don't think textbooks expect a lot of fan mail. And I do get a tiny bit of fan mail for the textbook. So I think, I think uh, we're doing something right there. And it covers every, every species that's been studied, you know, from ants to elephants and everything in between. Um, and it covers every aspect of animal cognition, how animals learn, how they reason, how they remember, how they perceive the world, which is something I think people fail to grasp that each species doesn't just think and reason in their own way, but they actually perceive the world quite differently. I mean, talking again of of dogs, most people know that dogs have much more sensitive noses than we do, but I often get asked questions about dog vision um and uh i've had people ask me whether dogs see in black and white which is definitely not the case their vision is not as precise as ours not as acute as ours uh, and they are in human terms they are red green colorblind so if you're going to throw a ball for your dog in the grass don't throw a red ball um, throw a yellow ball or a blue ball, but not a red or obviously a green ball because the dog, poor dog won't be able to find it. Um, so anyway, so that's animal cognition. There's not a lot to be said about that. And then Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You is a book that I wrote for, for everyone, for everyone who loves dogs or, or has ever thought about what dogs feel about us. It answers the question, does your dog really love you? And I am convinced that the answer is yes, that our dogs really do feel a strong emotional attachment to their human beings, and that, in fact, that is their secret superpower. So I said before, when you were asking me about how dogs uh, learn compared to wolves, and I said that our research couldn't find any difference in how dogs and wolves learn, that they are both equally ready to follow human gestures, for example, So I don't think that the secret of dog success lies in anything to do with their cognition or their intelligence. And I know this is where I can cause a little bit of offense because some people do think they have a smart dog. And I know there are individual dogs that are smart, but as a species, I don't think there's anything special about the intelligence of dogs. What is special about dogs is this amazingly ebullient and extroverted and and just out there drive to form strong emotional bonds with members of other species. We see it primarily directed towards us. And in the history and the evolution of dogs, it is about them forming relationships with us. But the way it's programmed in them, it's it's not like a dog is born and goes, oh, I need to find some people to love. A dog is born just with a very outgoing nature. And if a dog, a puppy is put with, you name it, that puppy will grow up into a dog who wants to have emotional bonds with that thing that it met when it was a puppy. As I say, we primarily see it directed towards us The majority of dogs grow up near people and seek out people for strong emotional bonds. But if you put your puppy in the goat barn, and I visited some goat ranchers here in the North of Arizona who have these dogs who love goats. And this is one of the oldest jobs that dogs have done for people is that they have guarded our livestock. How do you motivate your dog to guard the goats, to guard the sheep, to guard the horses. You just put the puppies in the barn with the goats, the sheep, or the horses, and the puppy grows up into a dog. Who loves those animals? And um, that, I am convinced, is their secret superpower. Not so secret, really. I mean, most people know this at some level. But some people, like my mother, used to say, oh, it's not really love. It's just the British expression cupboard love, meaning meaning." love to get some food right um and of course our dogs do love us because we feed them but they also just love us for who we are they just have strong emotional connections to us um which if you if you see them in another human being it seems kind of strange i mean um if if you knew a human who reacted to you the way your dog reacts you would think that person's a bit strange. And there is, in fact, a very, very rare syndrome called Williams syndrome, which involves damage to 28 genes in the human genome. And people with that syndrome behave, you know, a little bit like dogs. One of the features of the syndrome, it's called in the the medical literature, it's called extreme gregariousness. But it's just an amazingly outgoing and trusting nature And we actually did research showing that when you compare the genomes of dogs and wolves, there's evidence of mutations in three of those 28 genes that are involved in Williams syndrome. So I think we've actually uncovered some of the genetic portion of the puzzle of what makes dogs so amazingly loving and friendly and outgoing. So that's the main main thrust of the book. And then in the book, I explore all the different kinds of science, you know, my own behavioral science, but also neuroscience and hormonal studies and all the different kinds of science that contribute to understanding what makes it possible for dogs to be such loving beings.
1: Wonderful. We'll make sure to link to both these books, because, of course, you know, it could be somebody, you know, listening at home who has a dog. Uh, but of course also people interested in science or learning more about cognition so that's absolutely wonderful and you mentioned right. of course the importance of science of knowing of you know precise language of you know of course also using the science to be of service to help and perhaps at the end of this podcast you could elaborate a little bit on what are some of the future directions that you see that are important where research is done or what you still would like to do?
0: Oh, absolutely, well, so on the practical side on actually helping dogs, as I said, we've done a lot of work over the years with animal shelters and we're still in the middle of the moment of a big project helping animal shelters to institute fostering, that is to say, getting their dogs into the community OK, these are not permanent homes. These are just foster homes. These are people who are willing to take the dog maybe just for a weekend, but maybe for many months until it's adopted. And we've already demonstrated that this is greatly advantageous to the dogs. We know that shelter living is very stressful, very negative for dogs. Even a weekend in somebody's home, dog a bounce, the dog is happier, healthier. It's altogether a very positive thing. So we're working to help shelters, help dogs get out into the community. And this, in my mind, is part of moving away from sheltering altogether. So throughout the Western world, we've had a century and a half of animal sheltering. Shelter 1.0 was we brought the dogs in, we gave them a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, If nobody picked them up, we euthanized them. That was sheltering 1.0. Sheltering 2.0 is what we have right now where the animals come into the shelter. If it's a decent shelter, the chances are that dog will never be euthanized. It will either be adopted, which is obviously the preferred outcome, or it will live for weeks, months, maybe even years in these kennels. I don't think that that's a satisfactory situation. I want us to move to sheltering 3.0 and sheltering 3.0 is the end of sheltering as we understand it. A shelter becomes a community animal resource center. And it becomes a place where if you're having trouble with your animal, you can go there and they can provide you, they can guide you towards the kinds of help that you need. Many shelters already offer subsidized veterinary care, but let's move beyond just veterinary care. Let's look at behavioral care. Let's look at helping you. If if you feel I'm gonna have to give this dog up because my neighbor cannot cope with how the dog barks when I'm out all day, go to this community animal resource center and they will guide you. They will provide you with some tips how to help the dog not bark so much. Changes to your lifestyle, maybe apply behavior analysis techniques, guide you to help your dog stay in your home. Or if you have no alternative, you're gonna have to go into hospital for something for a couple of weeks. And there's simply nobody you know who can take that dog in for you while you're you're incapacitated. This Shelter 3.0, this Community Resource Center, maybe could take the dog for those few weeks, maybe could foster the dog to a family for those few weeks so that when you're ready, you can come back and you can take the dog back. So that's, that's part of a sort of a vision I have on the, on the applied side. But then on the basic science side, I want to know better, what do dogs really think of us? What really happens when a dog joins a human family? Or when a dog is forced to leave a human family? What kind of distress does the dog experience? How long does that distress last? Um, and part of that would be um, more studies on how dogs live among dogs, which we simply have almost no information about. And surely how dogs live with others of their own species is foundational knowledge that we need to have. It's quite bizarre for me as somebody who studied other animals before I came to dogs, before I came to studying pet animals, It's quite bizarre that our understanding of how dogs live with dogs is so very limited. And I I feel we desperately need that. So there's still plenty to do.
1: Still plenty to do. You're not (laughs) hiring anytime soon. I can hear that. So it will definitely meet you back on another podcast because we didn't cover a lot of them, but we did cover a lot. So, and of course we always ask our podcasters if they have an animal story to share, uh, a joyful story with their own dog or anything else. You already mentioned how amazing your trip was um, up in, in Indiana, but uh, perhaps you have in conclusion for this podcast another animal story to share with us.
0: Oh, Sabrina, that's difficult because I just have so many. I have to quickly think where, where to narrow things. Okay, can I just tell you a story of something I just read last week, which just amazes me to, yes. the, to the end?
1: No, Absolutely. Like.
0: So, people tell stories about dogs, and the stories we tell about dogs reflect partially what dogs are like and partially how we understand dogs. And so, last week, I was reading about. Saint Guinefort. Saint Guinefort was a greyhound. In 13th century France, there was a story of a dog who saved the life of a baby, but the lord, whose dog and baby this were, was confused, and he initially thought that the dog had killed the baby, and so he killed the dog. He killed his greyhound, Guinefort, And then a moment later, he realizes he's made a terrible mistake and that actually the dog had saved the baby from being attacked by a snake. And so this Lord felt so bad about it that he buried the dog and built a shrine around the dog. And this shrine became the shrine of the Holy Saint Guinefort, who was a dog. And for centuries afterwards, this was did I already say this was in France? For centuries afterwards, the Catholic Church tried to wipe out this practice of worshipping a dog, because it's clearly completely incompatible with the Catholic Church and all other branches of Christianity, for that matter. You're not supposed to worship animals. And yet people continued worshipping this dog. And I read as archeological studies. So they know where this was, right? They know where this was. And there's a, there's a place near Lyon in France called the Bois de Saint-Garfort. And at this location, there was an archeological di- archaeological dig in the 1980s and they found evidence, children's shoes, I forgot to say, mothers would bring their sick children to Saint-Garfort to be blessed and to be healed. And they found in this archaeological dig, they found evidence of children's shoes, children's clothing, and small coins that have been tossed to, to the Holy Greyhound. And, you know, they kept doing this, all, not just all through the Middle Ages. They kept doing this until around 1920. People continued worshipping Sango for until around 1920. So I really want to go and see this for myself. This is just, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful that people, modern people would give a dog, would believe this of a dog. And even though this is inconsistent and incompatible with their broader religious beliefs, it's just such a powerful thing. It's just such an amazing relationship that we have with these animals. I just love that so much.
1: Yes, you absolutely radiate this. Of course, everybody listening to this, you can't see Clive, but he's been radiating (laughs) Uh, all through this podcast, talking about dogs and wolves and research. And yeah, that's just, and dog is love. I really, you know, I'd love that that sentence uh, that title is just such a strong title on so many levels. So thank you so much, Clive, for coming on. And I hope to connect with you soon again about, you know, all the wonderful work you do and also the collaborative work you do that you mentioned. So thanks so much for, again, for coming on to the podcast.
0: My pleasure, Sabrina. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great fun.